letters to the Ephesians, and we're going to begin this morning's session, and during the day we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3. And I want to really establish a principle, I've got the title here, The Power of the Cross to Make One New Man, and, and there, are, there are two principles we've got to understand here, and the principle that, number one, is what it really means to be in him. It's one of those sort of phrases that are thrown around by Christians and are frequently repeated in scripture, but I want us to get hold of that. And to do that, I need to explain to you carefully what I have come to call the law of heredity. I want us to get that. And may I suggest right now that you open up your spirit wide, put your intellect in sleep mode, because what's going to happen is your spirit's going to get it, and then gradually it can educate your intellect on what is this fantastic thing that's, that's transformed you. And I find that's, that's, the, that's the true of a number of things. So we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 7, please. And here we're going to look at the principle. This is a good place where this principle is, is illustrated, and it, it's what I'm going to call the relentlessness of Bible logic, which isn't the same as natural logic. We're told that in Corinthian letter, that by the wisdom of this world, they never came to know Jesus. He said, now we do preach your wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of this world. Amen? And we're told that um, the wisdom that comes down from above has got some glorious qualities. It's first of all peaceable, it's open to reason, it's easy to be entreated, it's uh, not jealous or envious, but at the same time it's unwavering. So we're going to be looking at that wisdom really, to understand this. And we're, 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 this is the chapter where we're introduced to the great theme of the book of Hebrews, which is the Melchizedek priesthood. We're told in the beginning of chapter 8 that this is the most important thing that we're saying in the book of Hebrews. But now, in chapter 7, he's introduced. He's called the king of Salem. He's called the priest of the Most High God. And we read that Abraham met him when he returned from the slaughter of the kings. That all took place, of course, in Genesis 14. And Abraham's response to Melchizedek was to do two things. And we're told in verses 2 and 3 who this great Melchizedek is. He's first of all king of righteousness. He's also king of Salem, which means the king of peace. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but remains like the Son of God, remains a, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now, when I read that passage of Scripture to my daughter Rachel, when she was about seven years old, I said, Rachel, let me just read this to you and tell me who the Bible's talking about. She said, oh, that's Jesus. And I thought, well, you know more than many theological seminary professors. It, it, it really is that simple. This is what 
This is what we call a theophany. A theophany, I'm sure many of you know this, is a, is a pre-incarnation manifestation of God in human form. Abraham met God as a triune person, which is quite interesting. The one that stood outside um, Jericho was another theophany. And you'll find them right through the Old Testament. Well, here's one here. So the second person of the Godhead who we now call the glorious Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, this was the one who, who stood there and mediated to him the elements of the new covenant. He gave him bread and wine 2,000 years before in time the covenant had been ratified at the cross because we've got to see that the cross is an eternal event as well as happening in a point of history. It reaches into eternity and, and, and therefore, as we get many scriptures which teach us this in the book of Hebrews, it, we, it talks about the Lord Jesus being the freshly slain way. Now that doesn't mean we're going into the Catholic era of thinking that every time we take communion he's re-crucified. But what we're being told is that what Jesus did on the cross has the power of, of an eternal now and therefore it never needs to be repeated. It's as powerful at this moment as it was when that blood first gushed out of his quivering body on the cross at Calvary. Amen? It's as powerful today as, as it was when he first took sin and paid the full penalty for it. And Abraham could get hold of it 2,000 years before the event because it's eternal. Just as you and I can get hold of it 2,000 years after the event and it's just as powerful for us as it was for Abraham. So Abraham was a New Covenant believer. Hello? And King David lived in the New Covenant approximately a thousand years before it was ratified. He raised up this David's tabernacle, which was totally illegal. He did things as a, as a priest and a king unto his God, which only New Covenant believers can do. And the theology of most of the Psalms, which are written in David's tabernacle, is the theology of the New Testament, is not the theology of the Old Testament. Amen. So you mustn't make this hard and fast division between the Old and the New Testament because it literally is not there in Scripture. So people say, well, where does it talk about clapping hands in the Bible? Oh, in the Psalms. Well, that's the Old Covenant. No, it isn't. It's New Covenant. Because those 30-odd years of, of David's tabernacle was a totally New Covenant thing. And that's why God said, I'm going to raise it up again. And that's why we're seeing it being raised up right now. Amen. So Abraham is actually having an encounter with the glorified high priest. In time he's not yet become incarnate, in time he's not yet died upon the cross, but in eternity, it's, I'm not going to say it has already happened, because that's not the right phraseology, it, it already is an eternal is. It's an eternal now. Amen? And we've got to allow our spirits to be instructed in this way. We mustn't be too much prisoners of time. And so what happens is this, that then it says, verse 4, Now consider how great this man was, to, he, to whom, talking about Melchizedek, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So that's the first thing you've got to consider. If if someone gives 
a tithe to someone, we're being told that the receiver of the tithes is clearly greater than the one who gives the tithes. Amen? That's the first principle we're being taught here. So by that first argument, we're being told, clearly, Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is superior to him. Now the purpose of this argument is to prove that the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. But, but see how the argument flows. Then one more thing we're told here, verse 6. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who has the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So here's the second argument. The fact that Melchizedek reached out and blessed Abraham and Abraham presumably kneeled before him and, and received the blessing, that tells us again that Abraham is recognizing his inferiority to Melchizedek and Melchizedek's superiority to him. Okay? Now here's where this law of heredity comes in that I want us to understand. Come down now to verse 9. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now that's what I want us to comprehend this morning. See, what we're being told is this. We're being told that Levi, who's not yet born, not yet existent, in fact, even Isaac had not yet been born. So you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, then you've got Jacob, and then you've got Levi. So you've got one, two, three, four generations before Levi even comes into physical existence. But we noticed the other day that, that God had already formed me even before he created the world. Although I didn't exist physically, I do, did exist in the plans of God and even the days which were ordained for me were already planned by him before the world was. Amen? Now that's how amazing our God is. So you and I are not an accident, we're part of his eternal plan. Now what we're being told here was that, that because of the plan of God that Levi should come forth in the fourth generation after Abraham, that, that he was in the loins of Abraham and participating with Abraham in what he did to Melchizedek. So it wasn't only Abraham submitting to Melchizedek, it was also Levi submitting to Melchizedek. It wasn't only Abraham being blessed, it was Levi being blessed. And as Abraham bowed and submitted to, as Abraham bowed and submitted to Melchizedek, Levi was in him, participating with him in his act of submission. And therefore, says the advice of the Hebrews, is therefore Levi clearly is inferior to, to Melchizedek, because he came out from the loins of, of Melchizedek. Now that's the principle of the law of heredity. And I want to just spend a little while grasping this, because this great truth is taken to explain many important things for us to understand. And if you go to the book of Romans momentarily, we can look at that. In Romans chapter 5, we are introduced to two men. And these are, if you like, these are the beginnings, as we looked at briefly yesterday, these are the beginnings of two genealogies. There's the genealogy after Adam, and there's the genealogy after Christ. 
two genealogies. And, all, and all, all of us, by natural birth, have a genealogy after Adam. And because Adam decided to disobey God and sin, then what the Bible is telling us is that all Adam's races, all the generations of Adam, were in the loins of Adam, involved with him in that act of disobedience. So, I was there when Adam decided to, not to obey God and to go and do his independent thing. I was in Adam, and so I become a participant with Adam in his rebellion against God. Therefore, I suffer the consequences of that. So when I was born, I already had the Adamic nature inherently part of me because I was born of Adam. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, we're not all arguing about fairness. We're just recognizing mighty spiritual principles here. All I know is that when I was born, I didn't have to learn how to lie. Amen? It was in me. And the Bible tells me that Satan is the father, he is a liar and he's a father of all lies. So that shows me that the that, that satanic nature who was able to enter Adam the moment he stepped away from God and it's been passed down to every succeeding generation ever since. My little, beautiful little daughter Rachel, when she was, I remember this, she was, oh, she must have been very young, less than two years of age. And she was playing in the living room of our house and I kept seeing her going to a cushion, picking up a cushion, put, taking something, putting it in her mouth and then dancing around. I thought, what's she doing? So after a while I picked up the cushion and there underneath the cushion was a little packet of candies which she had stolen. <laughs> now I went to the tin where she was allowed to take her candy ration. She had a candy ration every day, I think between you know, three or four usually. She would have a day's supply and that was it. We trained all our kids you know, in these sort of disciplines. But she had gone to that tin and, and stolen. <laughs> and now she got, the, she got the, the, the cunning to hide the thing, but she wasn't very cunning at stealing it and eating it. But I thought, my little daughter, less than two, is a thief. <laughs> Where did she get it from? <laughs> and then I realized I was looking at myself. <laughs> and it goes right down the family line to, to Adam. Amen? And, and so the, the reality of the Adamic nature is very, very real. I, got, I was never taught by my parents to be angry, but I was good at it. And a six-year-old baby is usually pretty good at showing its anger when it doesn't get its way. This, this beautiful little, you know, beautiful creation, but boy, you cross the will of that little one and it can let you know. Amen? Is that not true? And so we can see this thing in absolute reality. It's not just a theological concept, it's a reality. And so the, the fruit of sin, which comes through Adam, has come to all of us because our roots are in him. Amen? That's what we're told and it's clearly worked out in practice. And so as a result, every one of us expects to die. Because death can only come to human beings who have sinned. And I often use this as an argument to people. They say, well, I, I don't need God, I'm living a very righteous life. And, you know, and I say, well, wait a minute. I said, do you expect to live forever or do you expect to die? They say, well, don't be silly. Of course I'm going to die one day. Well, I say, well, that proves that sin's working in you because otherwise you wouldn't die. Jesus said, no one can take my life from me because he was the only man that had never sinned. He said, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again, but no one can take it from me. 
It was only when he joyfully and voluntarily became the, the dustbin, the, the garbage receptacle for all the foulness of Adam's race. And when all that sin came upon him, it was only possible then for him to die. Amen? You understand that? And so we're told in Romans 5 that, that a lot happened because of this one man. We're told, for example, verse 12, that just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Nevertheless, death, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So Adam's a type of him who is to come. Both of them are the heads of a genealogy. And you get an inheritance from them. It tells us in verse 17, if by one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many were made righteous. And I could go on and on and on. Now can you see that God's dividing the whole of humanity into two genealogies? There's the genealogy of Jesus Christ and there's the genealogy of Adam. Now by nature we're all born of Adam. And I want you to, to really think about this because you see we all have a responsibility. We're going to produce a family line assuming that we have some children of course which most of us do. And I can either set up a, a, a genealogy of righteousness or I can produce a genealogy of sin. So what I do with my life is going to very powerfully affect my children and my grandchildren my great-grandchildren because I'm going to start something in my, in my family line which either can be to blessing or cursing. And you know that's true. You can look at certain families. You know how tragically it's often an alcoholic father who produces an alcoholic son. Until we break the curse in Jesus. That's the only way to break the curse. Now let me try and illustrate this. Um, my great-grandfather was uh, a dock worker in the port of Bristol in England. And he had a son who became my grandfather. And this grandfather of mine became... A, uh, he, he went into the... British Army and was a regular in the British Army all his life. He became a regimental sergeant major, which is the highest you can go without being of the gentry. In those days there was such class distinction that if you weren't born a gentleman there was no way you could become an officer. I mean, you talk about racial segregation, I tell you, class segregation is just as evil and just as wicked and Britain was and to some extent still is full of that stuff. If you're born of the right family then the doors to the top open all the way. Born of the wrong family and you can't break through. Now those things have changed to some extent. But in those days they were pretty bad. And so he had my father who became an engineer. And then he had me and I became a research scientist. Now just imagine. You see I just worked it out the other day that my great grandfather was born somewhere around about uh, 1810. And so about 1830 he will be 20 years of age. And at that time the, the state of Texas, uh, the, the guy called 
Stephen Austin, those of you who are not Texans may not know this, but the Stephen Austin was the founder of the state of Texas for many practical purposes. He got a, an agreement with the Mexicans at that time to, to start um, establishing um, emigrants from, from Europe. And, and if you became an immigrant at that time, you came with, and, and the first 300 families were called the old 300, and it all started actually in Seeley, Texas, where Rusty comes from. That's where, that's where it all began. And those first 300 families that came over, I just want you to imagine that my grand, great-grandfather was of the age that he possibly could have been a part of that group. So let's imagine that instead of slaving away in the docks of Bristol, he became one of those first emigrant families. He came to Texas, let's say, somewhere in the 1830s. At that time, just by volunteering to become an immigrant, you were granted automatically a 4,000-acre plot of land. That was, your, that was immediately given to you when you, when, I think when you signed up to stay for at least one year or something like that. And you had, to, you had to farm a certain percentage of it within two or three years. There were certain rules, but you got 4,000 acres. So imagine my, my great-grandfather came over as one of those early um, immigrants to the United States um, got these 4,000 acres. Of course, at that time, they had no idea what was under the land or how valuable it was. So imagine that my grandfather discovers that these 4,000 acres, which he's inherited from his dad, are rich in oil and gas. So he starts digging, drilling oil wells. Now, what would, it, what would that make my grandfather? It would make him a multi-millionaire, rich Texan. Amen? Now listen, what would that have made me? I would be a multi-millionaire, rich Texan. But my great-grandfather made the decision not to come to America when he could. He decided to go on slaving away in the docks at Bristol. So I didn't get a darn thing out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so his, can you see how his decision has very much affected my destiny? I'm not a Texan. I can't even talk properly. <laughs> and I don't have millions and millions of dollars in the bank which I would love to have. Now can you see how it works there? Now my grandmother, because that particular family was not a Christian family, my grandmother was a little Welsh lady called Mary Jones and she was converted in the Welsh revival in 1904. She was powerfully impacted by the Spirit of God and she came from a dead old, stuffy old Baptist sort of um, background, but she came on fire with that experience of the Welsh Revival, and she began a, a new hereditary. She began a new generation, which has gone from family to family, and I'm part of the fruit of her prayers. Her eldest son, my uncle, obviously, when he was a young man, and he'd already got a a very fine honours degree in Liverpool University, but he, he left all that and came to Canada in the year 1905 as a pioneer missionary. And he's written a wonderful autobiography, which has uh, never been published, but his, his daughter, my cousin, has recently given me a copy of his book. And he went all around the area. Well, I, two or three weeks ago, I was in the same area where he was a pioneer missionary almost 100 years ago. He planted the first Baptist church in Winnipeg. In 1907, he planted that church. And in 1989, I was preaching in the same pulpit. And I was following the trail of, of really my grandmother's prayers. 
which were worked out in the life of her eldest son. He then moved to America and became an American citizen and lived in uh, Vermont, Newport, Vermont, and there's a whole generation of American Vincents which I'm now meeting up with. It's part of my family. All of them are on fire for Jesus. And they have a great genealogy and we're connecting up together and, and, and it seems to have flowed in the British dream um, and it's come to I think full expression through me and now we've got three generations and now we're linking up with each other and we're discovering our, our family heritage. But what I want you to see is that you've got a responsibility the way you live your life to set many generations after you. Can you hear me? If you fool around with a little bit of Christianity on the side, you're going to produce kids who will be like that. And they probably will go off into sin and, and give you all kinds of problems. But, but if you are passionately committed to Jesus, it, it says in my Bible, if you bring a child up in the way that he or she should go, when they're old, they will not depart from it. They won't. And all my kids are on fire for God. They were born, uh, I mean, they were married as virgins to wonderful Christian partners and I've got the most incredible grandchildren that are now catching fire. My granddaughter, Nicola, grew up in the intercession tents of Reinhard Bonnke. She would walk around in those intercession tents and although she didn't understand what was going on, the spirit of what was going on went into her spirit and when she was seven years of age and she was on a visit back to England while they were still working in Africa with Reinhard Bonnke, I opened my little granddaughter's door and I found her on her knees weeping. And she was seven. I said, I said, Nicola, what's the problem? She said, oh, granddad, there are so many children that don't know Jesus and I'm just crying out to God for them. Then they went to, um, then they became the international crusade directors of Reinhard Bonnke Ministries. So they were starting to go around the world and they, they did incredible things in the Philippines, in, in, in Kuala Lumpur, which is a Muslim country. My, my grandson is such an intercessor that he got the Muslim government to agree to Reinhard Bonnke to come take the football stadium in Kuala Lumpur and have a full-blown Christian crusade in a Muslim country. It was as if, as if they were memorized, as if they were mesmerized by the power of his prayers. Reinhold came, had this incredible crusade, and then as if they woke up out of their stupor and they arrested my son-in-law and threw him into jail. But only after the crusade was over. <laughs> and my little granddaughter said to her, her mummy, and he said, Mummy, I know we've got to get the world saved first. She said, but when the world, this is her at nine years of age, she said, I know we've got to get the world saved first, but when the world is saved, could we go back to England and have a puppy? <laughs> <laughs> She's got her priorities right. We've got to get the world saved first. And now you meet her at 16. Just a few months ago, Eileen, my my daughter Rachel and my granddaughter Nicola, they did a three-generational women's conference in England where they had people signing up and trying to get into that conference by any, any means. It was an absolute pack out. There were, they, they could have taken three times as many, but it was, there were was hundreds and more than a thousand people there. And Nicola, one evening, she preached on the tragedy of broken families that as a girl at school, she said, in my class at school, there are only two children who have got, got the original mother and father. And she, she said, come on, we've got to pray about this. And she got on her knees and she led this multitude in 
some of the most powerful intercessions. They said it, it shook the place. It shook the very, very gates of hell. And something, uh, there's, a, there's a power here. Now, I, obviously, I'm a very proud granddad. You can tell that. It doesn't take much insight to see that. But I tell you, this is what we can all do. And you're not just, what I want you to see is you're not deciding what you will do with your life, you're deciding what generations after you are going to do with their lives. And we've got to see this generational thing. Say, oh God, I want to make sure not only that I walk right, but I, I so walk right that I produce exemplary uh, a life that my kids want to follow. I had, when I was 70 years of age, I had letters all around the world from wonderful men and women of God just thanking God for my life and what I've been able to put into them. But the most precious one to me was my eldest son. He said, Dad, you're my hero. And I want to be just like you. I thought, what a, what a privilege. And I want you to want your kids to be your hero, and for you to be their hero. Amen? Now, what I now want to move on to is this. That there's a power in the cross, which is brought out here in Romans 5, and developed in Romans 6, and it's, it's frequently referred to all over the New Testament, that there is a power in the cross to cut me off from my hereditary past and reveal Jesus in it. And this is how it works. And all this is in the scripture, and it's all there in, in Romans and Ephesians and in Colossians particularly, but it's in so many places. But what we're told is this, that because of the law of heredity, that, and because... God had foreordained you and I to salvation. I was, I was in Christ just as I have naturally always been in Adam. And just as I was involved with Adam when he sinned and brought death upon the whole human race and allowed the satanic nature to invade the human race, and I now participate with Adam in that sin just because I'm of his genealogy. In the same way, I was actually in Christ as the second man because Adam, we're told, is the type of the great new man, Jesus Christ. So what's true concerning my hereditary in Adam is now true of my hereditary in Christ once I lay hold of it by faith. So I was, act I was actually in the loins of Jesus participating with him in what he did to deal with sin. That's what the Bible clearly teaches us. Now this, you see, it's not just a theological concept. In the mystery of the Spirit, it's utterly and absolutely real. As I've said several times already, my, my sinfulness was not a theological concept. It was horribly and tragically real. I couldn't stop sinning because of the nature that I was given. Then in addition to that, 
I was shaped in iniquity by the sinful circumstances in which I was brought up. So they're the two things that shaped me to be the kind of person I was. My inheritance through Adam, but you can't blame Adam for everything. My circumstances shaped me. Now, I didn't have a bad childhood, but my wife Eileen did. She was told strongly and firmly by her mother several times, we never wanted you and we wished you'd never been born. Now, what sort of damage does that do to a kid? And of course, her father, who had a tender heart for her, but her mother hated her, when he went off to the Second World War, she never saw him for six years. You can imagine the damage that six years of bombardment, especially when there wasn't enough food to eat, like wasting food on you, I wish you'd never been born. Well, you can imagine what that was doing to my precious ideas. You can understand why at 17 she ran away from home. It was only the grace of God that's transformed her into the amazing woman of God that she is today. But there's a power in the cross which she and all of us have experienced. And the power of the cross is this, is that in, as Jesus took upon himself all the sins of Adam and somehow in the mystery which I don't claim to understand it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 he who knew no sin became sin it wasn't just the acts it was also the nature that he took and he took all that down if you like for though this is the best way I can put it into words he uh, actually somehow became fully that terrible cursed Adam in his death does that make sense to you? And he took it down to where it had to be justly dealt with. He took it down to the depths of hell and there we're told in Isaiah 53 it pleased God to bruise him. And God, because he's the God of, of righteousness, God had to take out the full penalty for sin. God cannot ignore sin. He has to respond to sin by wrath. Now, wrath isn't anger. It's much, much deeper than that. It's the inevitable response of perfect righteousness to sin. It has to be punished. It has to be fully paid for. And so the Father then poured out his wrath upon the Son. And I was in Christ, participating with Christ, while all that penalty was paid. So I was actually in a figure just like I was in Adam sinning against God, in Christ, do understand the way, I'm not going off into theological error, but you've got to get this, I was in Christ paying for the sin. Because he was paying for it, I was in him while he was paying for it. So it comes to me, so God's not playing let's pretend games when he sends your sins paid for. It is paid for. Now, let that sink in. I know intellectually this is things are hard to grasp but my spirit knows these things and they absolutely burn like fire inside me and your spirit can know these things and it's absolutely biblical all this stuff so Jesus uh, I was in Jesus when he when he died and paid for sin I was in Jesus when he went down into hell so I was participating with him in all these things. I was there. You know that old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I say, yeah, I was. was. I, was right, I was right in him and participating with him in what was going on at the cross. And that's why it's absolutely righteous for 
if Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father because sin was fully paid for, then it's absolutely righteous that I also should be raised with him. You see, the Jesus that rose from the dead wasn't the one who died. I'm going to, let me just, these are very important rabbit trails, but I'm not sure if they are, but you see, when the way that God created woman is a great allegorical sign of what he was going to do when he was going to give birth to the church. God could have just taken the dust of the ground and made a woman out of it. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. He put Adam into a sleep and then he opened his side, took out a rib and it says that, that from the rib he built the woman. That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. He built the woman and then when Adam came back out of the sleep, and that's a picture, if you like, of Jesus going to death and going into the grave and lying in the tomb. But when Adam opens his eyes and his inner figure has come back to life in, in a manner of resurrection, the first thing he sees is this fantastic woman. Now he's been shown all the animals and and he's given them names and they've been very nice to him and he's been nice to them and he's enjoyed them but there was something in Adam that was craving out, crying out for someone like himself. Now in our family we've had some wonderful dogs. We had two black Labradors that were absolutely part of the family and this precious dog Penny, oh she was a gorgeous, wonderful dog and and our rapport with each other was amazing. Penny and I understood each other perfectly but I have never had the slightest inclination to marry her. <laughs> I've never felt for Penny what I feel for Eileen. Because she's, when all's said and done, although she's, the, I'm sure she's in heaven, I know that she's going to lick me all over when I get there. <laughs> but it's not the same as a wife. <laughs> I'm sure you all understand what I'm saying. Now in the Hebrew, this, some great Hebrew scholar showed me this a few years ago. He said, you know, if you really take the Hebrew literally, this is what it says. It says, Adam opened his eyes and the first thing he says is, this is it! <laughs> bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's part of me. Now, what God did was when Adam and all his sin and all his nature and everything was put onto Christ and into Christ. Christ, as he's called, in 1 Corinthians 15.45, he's called the last Adam. He's, he's gathered up all that Adam is and all that Adam has done and all the pollution and foulness of that nature. It all comes into Christ. And, and, and as the last Adam, he goes down into death and he dies. But one of the last things that happened to Jesus was that as he hung upon the cross, you know this. I mean, just go to a few scriptures. Because this all helps us to understand this. It takes me the whole session, it's worth it. Come to, come to 1 John, please, for a moment. And come to chapter 5. Verse 4, it says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 6, 
This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is true. John is saying something incredibly important here, and he says the Spirit's bearing witness to this. Now come to John chapter, chapter 18. John chapter 18. I'm sorry, chapter 19, I beg your pardon. Chapter 19. The soldiers came to Jesus, he's hanging upon the cross. In verse 30 it says, he, he cries out, it's finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Literally in the Greek it says he dismissed his spirit. The centurion, who was in charge of the execution squad, it tells us in Mark's Gospel, looking straight at Jesus and seeing the way that he died, he got on his knees and said, truly, this is the Son of God. He'd seen many men die. He'd put men, I'm sure, to death in battle and he'd executed many men upon the cross. But he'd never ever in his life before seen a man in charge of his own execution. Choosing the moment when it was appropriate to dismiss his spirit, die, and go to be with his father. He was totally in charge. Amen? And he, he, again, he says, this is the Son of God. Because in the mystery of paying for sin, Jesus has now accomplished all he needed to do on the cross. And it was time now for that whole sin-cursed, Adamic-filled body, and I presume the soul, to go down into hell and finish the payment. The spirit, it seems, at that point ascended to the Father. Now these are mysteries which are hard for us to understand. Now at that point, a soldier comes and he cries out in a loud voice in verse 30, it is finished. And this phrase, it is finished, first of all, it's a loud cry. I think it tells us this in Matthew's Gospel. And the cry that's used is not a cry of pain, it's not a cry of anguish, it's the cry of victory which a gladiator makes when he makes the killing thrust in a battle. It's finished! And the word that's used is the word teleo or the nouns teleos. You could say nothing to pay. When someone owed money and there was a record kept by a moneylender of what they owed, and then someone came to the moneylender and settled the debt. Over that debt, they would write this same word, teleo, nothing to pay. It's finished. Hallelujah. It's finished! Nothing to pay! He dismisses his spirit. Totally in charge of his own execution. When they saw that he was already dead, verse 33, they didn't break his legs, but 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and what came out? Blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. In other words, once again the Spirit says, John, watch that, that's important. If you watch that blood and water gush out, that's a powerful prophetic sign which you need to make, take note of. 
So when he's writing this letter, maybe 60 years later, he says, this is the one that came by water and the blood. So let's go back to the creation of the woman and of how God made the bride of the first Adam. And when his eyes opened, he said, this is it, this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. You see, what happened was this, that that soldier did not know what he was doing. But he was actually serving God like a surgeon, making a cesarean incision in the womb of God so that God would be ready to give birth to something. What are the elements of birth? What happens to a woman when she's about to give birth? What gushes out? Blood and water. Alright, come to John 16. Come to John 16. Come to verse 20. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be destroyed as sin of the world. He wasn't just the crucified lamb, but at the same time, he was like a mother in travail giving birth to something. What we see on the cross are not only the pains of bearing sin, but they are the labour pains of giving birth to something. The blood and the water gushed out, then they carried his body down to the tomb, and then, if you like, that's when the labour pains became intensified as he went and paid the price of hell. And only you and I, only God knows what that was, but at the end of that, if you like, the, the pain of that travail is over, and now he's able to give birth to something. Hallelujah. On the third day, he gave birth to a new man who owed nothing to Adam and to Adam's race because it was a totally different genealogy. If you can understand this, Jesus in his resurrection was the first fruit of his own womb. He was, and it says this all over the New Testament. I, I like the King James, which uses this phrase, which is, I think is much better. He's talked about as the first begotten from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses rest these scriptures to their own destruction because they don't understand that this is God doing this and they try to argue that therefore that shows you. But it, 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 we won't get into all that stuff. It's such a glorious truth. Come to Colossians, for example. I just feel God wants me to get this right home because when this explodes in your spirit then you start to grab hold of these things. Come to Colossians chapter 1 and come to verse 13 of chapter 1. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, or if you like, translated us, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, or if you like, the first begotten of all creation. Come down to verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the first begotten from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Come to Romans chapter 8. These are just a few that come to mind, and there are many more of them. Come to Romans chapter 8. And it says this. For verse 29, for whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Hallelujah. Can you see what's being said here? So what happened was that, that, when, that, that in his death, he's the last Adam. Never call him, never call him, the, there's some phrase that people use, the second Adam, because that's, he's not called the second Adam. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, in his death he's the last Adam, but in his, in his resurrection he's the second man, the Lord from heaven. Amen? And that second man, the risen man Christ Jesus, has got nothing whatever to do with the last Adam who died as the total, final, complete, finished payment for sin. So what he became in his death never rose from the dead, but the new creation, the beginning of a whole new genealogy of men, the devil's never had his fingers on, that genealogy has never sinned, never committed all these things. It's a total new generation. And when you're born of that, the old has no claim over you. Hallelujah. Now that's what it means to be born again. Amen. You come out of the same womb. That's why it tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, he that sanctifies and those that are sanctified are of all one origin. Literally, they're from the same womb. Therefore, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Hallelujah. <laughs> so when you get this, and you realise the power of the cross has the power to close completely one genealogy and it literally is as if you started a total new life and what you were and what Satan had claim over that's dead forever in Christ Jesus, hallelujah. It's finished in him. And what you are in him is now what he is when he was risen from the dead. You see, it's not enough to be like Jesus on earth. We're like Jesus in his resurrection. Amen? Isn't that staggering? Now let that soak in. Now, now this is a faith exercise. And, and as, you, as you grab hold of one and let go of the other, it becomes reality in your life. Now when I've seen that, and I realise my new heredity, and like my wife Eileen, she, I've heard her give this testimony publicly, so I'm not telling on her, but she struggled with a, a pretty bad temper at one time. And it, she used to hate it. And I remember we went to a, a holiness conference in, in India. Shortly after we were converted, we were there as missionaries. We went to this holiness conference and it was the sort of Keswick type speakers, you know. It was great. And they were preaching some of these truths, but was really without the power of the Spirit to ratify the thing. It was like John the Baptist. He could teach these things accurately, but couldn't bring you into the power of them. And Eileen went forward for counselling. I remember her sitting there with these dear people trying to help her. And she said, she said, I've reckoned myself dead to sin until I'm blue in the face and it still doesn't work. <laughs> and anyway, we, at that time I had a a motorcycle that we were driving around on. It was a Czechoslovakian Java. And this was our transport at this time. And we were going away from this conference. She was on the back of the bike. And uh, we were a couple of bikies at heart. 
one day I'm going to I'm going to get a Harley Davidson and ride it. It's something I've never done yet. Before I die, I'm going to do that. Get Eileen on the back, and we're going to go somewhere. I mean, this is this is biking country, if ever there was. I mean, I've been through. You know, anyway, I used to have a beautiful bike called a Vincent Black Shadow. Ever heard of it? It was an old British bike, a V-twin, 1,000 cc's. It was a mean machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she was on the back of the bike and, and on the way back, she got the revelation. You know, where it tells us this in Romans chapter 6. It speaks in the past tense and it tells us that our old man what happened to him? That's right. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man, it's in what's called the past perfect tense, it's a done deal, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And in verse 11 it says, Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And the word reckon in 11 is an accountancy term. When accountants come in and start checking out the accounts of a company and they discover that you are $857 short, you don't say, well, let's get on our knees and let's reckon them into existence. Accountants don't think that way. They live in total reality. Amen? If the money's not there, it ain't there. And if the money's there, it's there. I only deal with reality. I can only reckon on what's actually there. So we're, you're using an accountancy term here because these things are actually there. They're reality. Although they're not necessarily manifest in the material world, they already are gloriously existent in the realm of the spirit. So on the motorbike, coming back from that conference, she got hold of this truth. And she, she said, <laughs> she took her old man, which was her Adamic nature, what had happened to her by her terrible experience as a child. And then the third factor is what you and I have stupidly done ourselves. You can't blame everything on the devil and you can't blame everything on your parents. You've got to take the blame for what you yourself have done. But those three components make up what the Bible calls the old man. What you formerly were before you were crucified with Christ. And that's cut off, bang, by the power of the cross through breakthrough grace. And she said, I took my old man and threw him over the hedge. And he's just rotted away there <laughs> in some field in India because he's never ever been able to climb back on her. That was the day she was able to love her mother because she battled with offence and resentment and hatred towards her mother. And here's the tragedy. As our first daughter was born, I could see the same, she was beginning to hate Rachel, Rachel was beginning to hate her, even at three years of age. And I thought, dear God, we're going to have a repeat in this generation of what happened in the last generation. See, if you don't deal with it, that's what happens. Well, that expense of the cross totally killed the old Eileen. And she became the most loving mother for Rachel. And she was able to turn around to her mother and love her into salvation. She led her mother to Christ before she died. And she was the one that poured love upon her from a totally transformed heart because the Eileen that was resentful and hurt and hated her 
went down to the cross, to the tomb, and never, ever, ever came up again. Amen? Amen. We're, we're in, in him. So when it talks about him, every, so every time you find this, when Jesus talks about doing things in his name, that's what he's talking about. You, so, you get into him so that he becomes your new hereditary. And as a result, you draw your hereditary characteristics from your new family line, which is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen? It's so powerful, and yet it's so practical and so real. And as a result, we're now living in the new genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's my brother. We're, we're of the same womb, and he and I love the same father, and the same father loves us equally. And the glorious Holy Spirit is the, if you like, is the mediator of all this. And it's absolutely real. It actually becomes the most glorious reality that you can actually live in. Now, if you go through the writings of Paul particularly, you will find that he, I mentioned this in the notes, you'll find that he mentions um, over 80 times it comes together with him and in his name. And also, in addition to that, it talks about being in Christ or in Christ Jesus. That comes about 80 times. So, can you see how, how powerful a thing this is? Thank you. Have you got that? And when that becomes reality, then, then all that he is and has, all that, all that the Father has, it becomes equally mine and it's not some, some sort of let's pretend game, it's utter and absolute reality. See, he's not ashamed to call me brother because that's who I actually am. I'm as much born from above as he is. Amen? I'm as much God's son as he is. There's no difference between us. I have the same access by the same spirit that he has. John says this, as he is, so are we in this world. Here's the same truth again. It's all over the Bible when you, when you read it. It's, it's so staggering and yet it's so gloriously true. Well, I've taken the whole session to get this into our hearts, but I, I just felt if this really explodes in us, it, it changes everything. Amen? Let's, let's pray it.